Let me begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, um, we come with expectant hearts um, to look into your word. We pray that um, you would make it understandable, sensible to us, uh, not just uh, as interesting facts, but as uh, powerful truths that move our hearts and change our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so the, the whole Sunday School series, my vision for it, my intention for it, is to give you guys a little taste of each book situated in the larger story of the Bible and then uh, prompt you um, and uh, motivate you to want to read for yourself, right, to press on. And I know that uh, reading the Bible can be very um, challenging, very intimidating, particularly because you don't know what you're reading. <laughs> um, so it helps to sort of situate everything and ultimately I think the only way that we will grow as believers is if we really read the Bible. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do. Um, we're going to look first at Nahum. So Nahum is a very interesting uh, uh, prophet book. Uh, it's an entire book length. Um, maybe you could describe it as a diatribe. Um, it's just a prophecy of doom for the downfall of Assyria. Uh, the whole book is just full of anger and vengeance. And um, traditionally in prophet books, you typically have the first half is uh, prophecies of doom and destruction. And then the second half is prophecies of grace and mercy and restoration. But you don't have that format in Nahum. It's just all doom <laughs> from beginning to end, all three chapters. Um, and the point of Nahum is that God's justice must mean, it means retribution for evil. So here's the word retribution. Retribution means um, to pay back. It means punishment for evildoers, evil doing. And I think this prompts um, our own thought, which is why can't God just forgive and let it go? Uh, why does he have to pay back? Why does there have to be retribution? And the answer is that without retribution, to do nothing in the face of evil is itself evil. To contribute to evil, right? If you, if you see evil happening and you do nothing to stop it, that's an act of evil itself, right? That's complicity in the evil. So God must act. Um, and so Nahum is saying God will act. And it's uh, focused on the city of Nineveh, the arrogant city, capital city of Assyria, uh, of this great empire, ruthless empire that will be destroyed. It's a city of lust, greed, violence, and oppression. And what it's saying is that God is angry at injustice. He's grieved by the death of the innocent. And so he is going to destroy this city. Um, it's sort of like an interesting uh, sequel follow-up to which book in the, which, which minor prophet that we talked about last week that also spoke about Nineveh? Jonah, yeah. So this follows about 100 years after the time of Jonah. Uh, the city repented and God's wrath was uh, stayed, but uh, a whole new generation has come up and they've returned to their evil way. So it's very much like, um, Noah's flood situation or like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment is going to come down. And one more point I want to make, which is that the destruction of evildoers is good news for God's people. So the book of Nahum, we're sort of looking for the grace. The whole book is grace. It's grace for us, grace for God's people who are oppressed by evildoers surrounding us. This is why Nahum is, in fact, the gospel. And the paradigm for that is the Red Sea crossing. Do you remember? The Red Sea crossing is the paradigmatic uh, event of salvation in the Old Testament. God's people are delivered, right? God parts the waters. And then what happens? Is it just that God's people are saved? Hooray. No, God's people are being pursued by Pharaoh's uh, charioteers, right? Char Pharaoh's army. And so now the waters crash down and destroy Pharaoh's um, uh, the evil forces of Pharaoh. So. It's always one, they're, they're always both two sides of the same coin. We will be rescued and redeemed by our loving Father, and the Father's hand of justice will come down on evil and injustice, right? It has to be. I'm now sweating, so I'm going <laughs> to turn off the, I don't know about you guys, but. Okay. 
So let's read um, a portion of Nahum. This is Nahum chapter 3. Very vivid description of Assyrian brutality. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So here is a very vivid imagery of Assyria as this prostitute, and God will shame Assyria. He will lift up and expose her nakedness, and it's a reversal of the arrogance and the pride of the wicked. They will come crashing down and they will be shamed. Um, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. Judah, please. Um, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So this is also a warning to Israel, right? Don't put your trust in earthly princes. Uh, For a long, long time, the Assyrian Empire seemed like it would never fall. Um, It would last forever and ever. It would be this indestructible empire. And so Nahum reminds us that all kingdoms fall. Uh, We actually currently live at the in one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen, the American Empire. And it seems like it will never end. The prosperity will go on forever and ever. Um, But that's not true. America will also fall one day and be eclipsed by other future empires um, unless the Lord returns earlier than that. So that means, right, kingdoms rise and fall, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Put your trust in Him. Um, Any questions about Nahum, the destruction of Assyria. Okay, let's go on. Habakkuk. So Habakkuk um, is a very interesting uh, prophet book. Uh, it's, it reads very much like Job, right? Habakkuk is very equivalent to Job, or it's very similar to um, Psalm 73, which, um, if you remember, uh, was preached on, uh, I think Andrew preached on it, uh, where it says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked and my foot almost slipped, right? I almost lost confidence in God. He sees um, the wicked prospering. He sees the righteous suffering. So the Habakkuk is crying out in despair to God because he sees the suffering of his people, Israel. And unlike other prophet books, the entire book is an exchange between Habakkuk and God. It's not addressed to the people. The people sort of eavesdrop. They sort of listen in on the conversation. But it's a dialogue between God and the prophet. Um, And the prophet is wrestling with the question, how can God be good in the face of so much suffering? And how can God use these corrupt nations like Assyria, like Babylon, which are themselves evil, as instruments of God's righteousness to punish Israel? And so I have three passages here to, uh, let me just read it to you. First Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. This is Habakkuk's cry (coughs) of despair. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, right? He's he, uh, the prophet is wrestling with the silence of God. Where is God? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Like, why isn't God acting? Like he acted so many times in the history of redemption. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth uh, perverted. So it seems like the bad guys are winning. It seems like immorality and wickedness are never punished, but they're rewarded. And so what kind of topsy-turvy world is this? And this is God's answer to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. 
And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So what is God's answer? God's answer is that his timing may seem slow, but he never fails to keep his promises, right? Very similar to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some understand slowness. And then Peter goes on to say, For to the Lord a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, right? So that we can't put God on our time scale, our timetable, right? You know, we're experiencing suffering and agony, and we're wondering, where is deliverance? And God's answer is, I will surely love you, I will surely save you, but, um, but you have to trust in my timing. And then verse 4, so this is, this is God's prescription for our lives. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is quoted by Paul in Romans and in Galatians. And what it's telling us is that to love God and to trust Him is to walk not by sight, but to walk by faith and to trust the Lord's good timing. Um, so then this is Habakkuk's final response of faith. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is probably the most famous passage in Habakkuk, also very uh, popular passage. But hopefully, having gone through the journey, you can appreciate Habakkuk's answer now. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So it's a really powerful passage because it tells us that our joy in God doesn't depend on um, good circumstances. It doesn't depend on His good gifts. Even in adversity, even under hardship, even in suffering, we can have this deep uh, calm and, and deep joy. And I think um, Habakkuk 3 here gives us a good test. Do we really love God or do we just love His gifts? And the test is when adversity comes into our life. Yes, we weep. Yes, we are in sorrow because that's normal and that's appropriate and that's, uh, and that's good. But underneath the sorrow, is there an unshakable joy that perseveres, that sustains, right? Or do we fall into despair? And then it shows what were we depending on all along. Was it God, His presence and His goodness, or was it His gifts and circumstances? So that's Habakkuk. Any questions about Habakkuk? Okay, so let's go to Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah, uh, the main theme is the day of the Lord. Um, so let me write this down. This is a, a topic that we've talked about last week, but it's very important for us to understand what's going on. The day of the Lord, um, which is mentioned in virtually every... Um, every one of the prophet books. It's a climactic day that will mark the end of history. Right? So we'll ta let's talk about this, right? Um, so you have basically, here's the story of the human race, the, the story of... Uh, of uh, God's work among His people. You have creation. And then you have, um, let me see how I, how I articulated it. Okay, you have creation and then you have the end of history, which is the day of the Lord, right? Um, the end. And... Um, History doesn't go on and on and on forever and ever. It doesn't loop in a circle. 
but it's, it's progressing towards this conclusion, this resolution, right? And what is the resolution? And I think a really good example, uh, a really good way to think about it is we can go all the way to the Garden of Eden. If you remember the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. This is my tree. Um, um, <laughs> um, what were the two trees? The first tree was? Yes. Uh, good and evil. And the second tree was? The tree of life. Good. Okay? So here's how it works, okay? Everything is contained. The whole story is contained in these two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a fork in the road. It's a test. Um, and Adam and Eve, if they partook the tree, they would know evil. They would exhibit or experience evil. And if they refrained from the tree and obeyed God, they would know good, right? Affirmative, positive good, not just the absence of evil, which is what they were created as, but they would actually perform actual good. And if they had proved themselves right, then immediately we would come to the day of the Lord, the end of history. The test is done, and then we have forever and ever eternity. Does that make sense? The new creations, new heavens, new earth. But what happens is Adam and Eve fail the test. Right? They demonstrate, they show themselves to be evil. And then what happens to the tree of life in the story? Yeah, it's never touched, it's never eaten. And then God places an angel to guard the way back to the tree of life. When does the tree of life appear once again in the story of the Bible? In Revelation, right? Revelation chapter 22, I believe, is it, or 21, at the very, very end, the tree of life appears again. And it says the tree of life is there. Its leaves are for the healing of the, of the nation. God's people are eating the tree of life. So that's the story, right? That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when... Um, what, what, what should have happened is that um, God's people should have been condemned to judgment and, and, and death. But then God, uh, in the interim here, in this intervening period, God will redeem his people so that they could partake of the tree of life. And that's the end of history, okay? So that's what we're talking about. Any questions about that, by the way? That was a very, very brief, um, quick thumbnail sketch. All right. So that's what Zephaniah is talking about. That's what all the prophets are talking about. They're talking about the resolution of the story. They're talking about the tree of life. They're talking about the healing of the nations. They're talking about the, evil, the end of evil and injustice. They're talking about the, 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 the healing, the restoration of all our aches and all our pains, wiping away our tears, everything made right, everything sad becoming untrue. Does that make sense? Right. The whole resolution of the story. Okay, so how does the story end? How does the story resolve? Two parts. God's judgment will be terrible on evil and injustice, but Zephaniah shows us that God's grace is greater still. So let's read those two parts. Zephaniah chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near. So there it is, the day of the Lord. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. So the imagery there is that even mighty warriors who are never afraid of anything, battle-hardened soldiers, they will, they will cower in fear because God's judgment will be terrible. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then listen to verse 16, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So the imagery here is of a siege. And uh, in the ancient world, nothing was more terrifying than experiencing a siege. And this is something that we kind of don't understand as modern people. We've never, in living memory, anyone has ever heard of or seen a siege, right? But in the ancient world, if you were living in a city and you see this um, foreign army encamped around you and then they circled your city, and then the siege would usually last weeks, maybe months, 
sometimes if your city was particularly well supplied and well fortified years, and at the end of the siege, if you lost, if there was no relief army to come to your rescue or if somehow they didn't give up, then they would sack the city. And what would happen in the sacking of the city? It would be terrible. Um, the soldiers would come rushing in. They would be pillaging, burning, looting. Um, they would be raping. Um, they would kill mercilessly. And then any survivors would be captured and then sold as slaves. So the rest of your life would be lived in agony. Um, that's what a siege is. And so that's the imagery. I will bring distress on mankind, verse 17, <coughs> so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So I think that's really evocative. Nothing can protect you from this coming day of wrath. Not your gold, not your silver. You know, we often think of money. We're so um, busy. We're so uh, anxious to accumulate savings. But gold and silver cannot save us from this day. We think money is a strong tower, but it's not. Um, In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So that's the judgment. Let's go to God's grace. God will rescue his people. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 and 19 through 20. On that day it shall be said, in, said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with, with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So this is a really beautiful imagery. You know, a lot of times um, the prophets, the priests would call on the people to sing praises to God, sing songs of adoration. But here it's God who is singing over his people. And the imagery here is very tender, very tender love. It's like a mother singing over her child. And uh, I have this memory of Christina um, nursing the children and she would hum a song while she would nurse uh, her child and the imagery here is God loves us like that you know so tender and if God loves us like that then why should we be afraid Uh, let's go on to verse 19 behold at that time I will deal with all your oppressors remember the two sides right there's no good news unless there's uh, bad news for our oppressors And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So look at that part in verse 19, right? God will gather the outcasts and the lame into his city. That's the day of the Lord. There will be this massive reversal, this cosmic upheaval. The proud and the arrogant and the mighty will be cast down. And then the lowly and the humble and the weak will be lifted up and exalted. Um, and one of the, uh, the key ways to understand the Bible is that the day of the Lord has already happened, but not yet. When did it already happen? Actually, there are many happenings of it, like sort of down payments on it. But what is sort of the most climactic happening of it? Resurrection. Yes. The Lord has come. The Messiah has come, right? So let me just put the cross. Um, So the life and death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord. All the promises in its inceptional form has been fulfilled. And therefore, where do we see this lame and the sick and the weak coming into God's city? Where do we see it? Anna. In the church, right? That's right. It's happening now in the church. And then one day it will happen in, in all of its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, any questions about that? All right. Let's go on to the last three books. 
Here, let me set this up for you guys because you have to understand the historical setting. So the last three prophets, the, prof, the minor prophets are put roughly in chronological order. So these are the last three chronological prophets. And the main theme of all of these prophets is the disappointment of the return from exile. Okay? So God's, God promised, if you remember when we were uh, talking in the, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and everything, <coughs> God promised not just a return from exile in Babylon, but he promised a glorious renewal a fulsome restoration, right? Uh, but the actual reality was nothing like this great fullness. It wasn't even a status quo, return back to the status quo. It was a pale shadow of the, for the glory of the former days, okay? So let me just sort of uh, map it out for you. So this is exile. Um, happened in 587 B.C., This is the return from exile. Uh, the decree from Cyrus happened in 537 BC. Um, and the return from exile, what, what were the people thinking this would be? They thought this was, this would be the, the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay. So people thought the return from exile would be the day of the Lord. And it was, in a sort of very preliminary, minor sense. Um, but people were so disappointed when the return actually happened. I don't understand. I'm looking around. It is nothing like what the prophets described. And so these last three prophets are writing in this period. Does that make sense? They're writing after the return. And they're pointing forward because all the prophets we've been reading about so far is right here. Right? Some of the prophets are before the exile. Some of the prophets are after the exile. And they're all pointing forward to this event, supposedly. Or what the, that's what the people were thinking and expect, expecting. And then these last three prophets say, no, no, no. This is just but a shadowy preliminary first step down payment. There's a glorious return, a glorious restoration happening uh, in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let, let me fill that out a little bit. Uh, the land of Judah, the, the tribe of Judah, then you have the tribe of Benjamin. And then you have to also understand that when Israel, Samaria fell, there was a lot of um, refugees. So lots and lots of uh, refugees came pouring in. So there was like remnants from each of the tribes. Yeah. And then the Levites, most of the Levites were in the Judah area as well. So, so it's roughly 1.75 tribes, yeah. But that's the Babylon one. That's right. That's the Babylonian exile. That's right. So the pro these last three prophets are talking about a future glory. Does that make sense? That will come when the Messiah will return. Messiah being the son of David, right? This Davidic king. The most poignant passage, in my opinion, I think one of the most poignant passages in all of world literature has to be Ezra chapter 3 verses 12 through 11. Let me read it for you. We've looked at this uh, before. So this is what happens is the people return and they start to rebuild the foundation. They start to rebuild the temple. They rebuild the foundation of the temple and then this is what happens. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house. So these are the people who remember the old temple, Solomon's temple, before um, the destruction of Jerusalem, right, at the hands of the Babylonians. Old men who had seen the first house, listen to this, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. It's so poignant. It's so um, tragic, right? On the one hand, the people are rejoicing because they're no longer in captivity. They're no longer in this faraway foreign land, Babylon, weeping on, on the shores of Babylon. But at the same time, they're weeping 
because they're rebuilding a temple and it is a shoddy, bad replacement, right? And so the sounds are intermingling. That's the return. It's a very ambiguous um, return. And therefore, for God's people, here's the theology, the exile continues. So this exile never ended. It continues on, even past the return. Because all the conditions of the exile persist. Even though the people return, they're still under oppression and subjugated by foreign powers. First by uh, the, what is it, the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans, right? They don't experience independency and freedom. The problem of sin and unfaithfulness continues. The temple is a shoddy replacement of the old. And there is, most importantly, no righteous Davidic king reigning with justice and peace. So what exactly happened <clears throat> on the return to Mark that's called a return? Like, what historical... Uh, Cyrus, who is the uh, Persian... So what happened was the, uh, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Okay. And then the Persians had a different policy. Every empire has their own policy. Basically, how do you hold on to power? And uh, the Babylonians... Uh, sorry, the Persians said... Every, every people's, you can, we're going to release the captives from Babylon. Everyone can go back to their homeland. And then this will um, ensure loyalty, which they were correct. The Jewish people were ecstatic. They praised God for the hand of Cyrus. And so the, the people returned in multiple waves. Over a period of like 100 years, there are multiple waves that go back. Um, all right, so let's read the uh, Agai. So Haggai is addressed to the returned exiles. The people have returned, and yet history continues, right? People are genuinely shocked and disappointed, and there's this deep feeling of spiritual malaise, spiritual complacency, and disquietude. And so Haggai is preaching to these people, and he's preaching perseverance. He's preaching hopeful patience. Don't give up. Hold on. Keep your faith because uh, the future glory is coming. And so let's read Haggai chapter 2. Let me see how I'm doing in terms of time. Oh, I'm not doing so bad. Pat myself, all right. Um, <laughs> For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What is this house? Which house is he talking about? The temple, that's right. <clears throat> the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. What does he mean by that? The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Yes. You know, Solomon's temple was amazing. It was just like glittering with gold, right? He just bedeckled it with jewels and just everything was just of um, the masonry, the quality of the stonework. Everything was super beautiful. And then the, it's called the second temple. This is called the second temple period, by the way. The second temple was a cheap knockoff. Right? And he's saying that the latter glory, this temple, will be truly rebuilt. And the glory of that temple will far surpass Solomon's. By the way, who tried to do that in history? Yes. King Herod, also known in history as Herod the Great, a great rebuilder. He basically rebuilt the temple and he greatly expanded the, the temple grounds. He, brought, he, he poured in... Uh, you know, enormous money. He, he redid all the masonry. In fact, part of the retaining wall of this enormous platform still stands today. It's called the Wailing Wall, right? But it was a magnificent temple, beautiful temple. What was Herod saying? I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's doing it, right? Um, <clears throat> but the promise of Haggai is that the glory of the, the rebuilt temple will be greater. What is, what, is, what is that actually saying? What is the real meaning of that? What is the spiritual meaning behind that? What does the temple represent? Yeah. So what that's saying is, as God was with his people in David and Solomon, he will be with his people in an even greater way in the future. 
right? And this is why Jesus says, what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. I will rebuild it. I will fulfill the prophecy in Haggai. It will be a glorious temple. And what is his glorious temple? If you remember 1 Peter. The church, remember? Each of us are stones being made into the house of God. The church is Christ's rebuilt temple. The presence of God is here, and it's, an, it's a worldwide, international, dispersed temple covering the face of the earth, right? So what is Haggai telling us? It's telling us that Israel's story has not, re- has not ended. It continues. The next chapter will be even greater and better. All right, any questions on Haggai? All right, let's go to Zechariah. Zechariah, I told you the, the, the distinction between a minor and major prophet is length. Zechariah, in my opinion, should be in the major prophet section. It's 14 long chapters. Zechariah, the, the best analogy I can give to Zechariah is most like Ezekiel. It's like psychedelic. It's the vision and the imagery. He has a series of dreams, and the dreams are ooh, like very... You know, like Ezekiel, very crazy. Um, and it's not, it's not chronologically continuous, but like, like a dream, it's sort of like all disconnected, right? So if you're going to read a book for the very first time, do not read Zechariah. It's a very difficult book. Let me tell you a funny joke. We, um, we uh, at one point in staff, we were like, what should we do for uh, small group studies, right? Oh, Let's do a minor prophet. We, nobody ever studies minor prophets. Which minor prophet should we do? We're idiots. We're dumb. We don't know. Because I, I, I didn't truly know. Someone's like, how about Zechariah? Yeah! There's a Zechariah study. That, who was here for the Zechariah small group study? That was hard. That was difficult. <laughs> All right. Actually, I'm, I'm defeating the purpose I, I stated, right? Which is I encourage you to read the Bible. But... Uh, <laughs> All right, so, so Zechariah, right? Zechariah is talking to the returned exiles who are facing deep discouragement and suffering. <coughs> and he's saying there's going to be a future restoration. So let's read Zechariah chapter 9. A very famous passage. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. You really have to understand the historical context to to appreciate the sound of these words to the people, you know? We're reading it now, and we're sort of thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is an Old Testament passage talking one another prophecy of Jesus. No, you have to really read it like the returned exiles. There has been no king in the line of David since the conquest by the Babylonians, right? Listen to this. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's telling us about this coming Messiah. And he's going to come not in battle armament, but in lowliness. He's going to be humble and mounted on a donkey, not a war horse. <clears throat> and in God's people, it says in verse um, 10, are not going to need traditional weapons of war to protect them. No more chariot, no more war horse or battle bow, because the Messiah will protect them. And he will establish a worldwide, world-spanning empire that will, co- that will be covered from sea to sea. Sea to sea is just another way of saying all the land that there is, right? Um, and it will be a lasting peace. And so, uh, remember I said that the day of the Lord has already happened in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So where is, the, where is this worldwide empire of the Messiah? It, it will stretch from sea to sea. Where is it? The church, yes. <laughs> um, it's already happened in a preliminary sense, but it will happen in its, all, in its fulsome greatness when the king truly returns and he establishes um, his empire on the, on, on the earth. 
uh, Zechariah 14. And on that day, there shall be, on that day, what is that day? The great day of the Lord, right? On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. (coughs) Sorry. And the pots of the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So let's go to verse 20. It says, Holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. Here you need to understand the Torah. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 36, um, on the uh, breast, on the, um, on the turban of the uh, prophets, there was a, a, a plate that read, Holy to the Lord, right? So what is that saying? That Holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells, not of people, but horses. What is that saying? Let's go to verse, the next verse. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be as holy to the Lord of hosts. So you know what that's saying? You know those consecrated gold bowls inside the temple, inside the holy place that only the, the priests could touch and use? It'll be like everyone has it. It'll be in every house. Do you remember the, uh, the vision of uh, the, the city, the, the, the new Jerusalem? What's, what's one of the distinctive features of the city of Jerusalem? Yeah, there'll be gold streets. You have to understand the, the, the symbolism of gold. Gold represents the presence of God. The tabernacle is made of gold. The Holy of Holies, which was this restricted space where the presence of God covered in gold, just a giant gold cube. The gold will flow out of the temple and it will, it'll just be on the streets. You know what that means? The whole city of God will be like the temple of the Lord, right? God's presence will be everywhere. You know where that's fulfilled? In the incarnation, right? Jesus Christ, he is the glory of God and he steps out of the Holy of Holies and he walks among us, right? So he's with us. So this is a promise that we'll be back in Eden when God walked with his people. Any questions about Zachariah's promise? <clears throat> All right. I have a yes. What's the last sentence mean about no more traitors? Oh, yes, very good. Um, so... In the time of Zechariah, just as in the time of Jesus, in the uh, temple grounds, there were merchants who set up shop, who sold sacri- uh, sacrificial pigeons and animals, who did money changers. And so they were causing this disruptive uh, atmosphere. And so these traders will be, tra- like merchants, will be cast out. There will be no more you know, disruptive noise for the Gentiles. Um, so this is fulfilled when Jesus fashions a whip and drives them out, right? My house will be a house of prayer. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? <coughs> Is that seen as a predatory action? It was, um, it was, I suppose, pra- practical um, because people, you're supposed to bring your sacrifices, but it's just too hard. So you just bring money and then you go to Jerusalem and then you buy a sacrifice, right? And then you're traveling. There was a Jewish uh, dispersion, so the Jews were scattered across the whole empire. So you just bring your local money, and then you go to change it, right? So there's money changers. Um, But what happened is that, um, for the sake of practicality, they place it in the court of the Gentiles. So uh, Herod's temple had this massive, enormous uh, court of the Gentiles. And then the the temple itself was relatively quiet, the temple grounds. This is the, the court of the Jews. But the, the, outer, the outer court was just a cacophonous marketplace. And this is where the Gentiles, if you were a God-fearer, you're not a circumcised Jew, this is where you get to pray. You get, you get to commune with God and fellowship with God. Just hear all this Middle Eastern bazaar, you know? So the, the net effect ended up being very, very disruptive, very, very um, bad. And also, the, the temple authorities were in on the take, so they charged rent. So, they, so it was a very um, advantageous arrangement for them. I guess what's the right solution? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Jesus drove them out. Yeah. So I have a question, though. Which is why the, the, the temple authorities are like, he's got to go. 
<laughs> he's, he's heading into our prophets. Go ahead. Oh, yes, very good. Yeah, very good. So good eye. Does this have to do with anything of priestlyhood being dispersed among the believers? Or is it yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, I didn't think of that. Um, so I don't know the answer, you know, in a very, like, studied way. But uh, that makes abundant sense to me because it talks about the priesthood of all believers uh, in the Bible. Um, all of us are like priests now. We have access to God. And so it makes sense that this imagery is talking about this dispersion of the, of the priesthood because in Joel 2, for example, it talks about the Spirit being poured out on all God's people. You know, your daughters and sons will prophesy. So, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's read Malachi. This is the very, very last book of the, of the Bible. Uh, it was written 100 years after the return from exile and, again, addressed to a returned people under foreign oppression, feeling hopeless, Right? It, just, it just goes on and on, right? Let me read Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, right? the day of the Lord, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. This is the uh, evil oppressors surrounding God's people. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So what is this telling us? That God will vindicate his people, <clears throat> the foreign oppressors will be crushed. And the God's people were reading this continually, reading into their contemporary situation. Of course, because the day of the Lord, the, the great glory is still coming. And so Jesus' contemporaries, when they're reading this, they're reading about the Romans. When the king comes back, he has to crush the Romans. That was the prerequisite. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, where am I? Uh, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. I love that imagery. <clears throat> you should think of it like this. You're fighting this battle. Like maybe you're in a siege warfare and it's this dark night and you're sweating and toiling and then suddenly the sun, the dawn appears and the sun rises and there's healing. You know, that's the imagery, right? Uh, let's go on. Verse uh, Continuing on in the verse, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the <coughs> you shall tread down the wicked, <clears throat> for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. That's another word for Sinai for all Israel. So verse four here is a bookend to the whole Bible. Right, it says, remember the law of the Lord. I mean, remember the law of Moses. So you have the law of Moses, which is the Torah, which begins the Bible. And then at Malachi, you have this remembrance saying, remember. So it, it connects. So it's basically saying the whole Bible is one interconnected, interlocking, unified narrative, which I just want to impress on you how amazing that is. Um, the Old Testament, it wasn't called the Old Testament back then. Just the Hebrew, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible was written over a thousand year period, over dozens and dozens of authors, right? None of them able to communicate with one another, and yet they're all telling the same beautiful interlocking story. Imagine, imagine if the Lord of the Rings was written by 20 authors over a thousand year period, and all of them perfectly fitting into each other like puzzle pieces. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of scholars who look at the Bible say, the story is too amazing. There must have been a massive amount of editing. So that's one of the major theories right now in scholarship, which is that the whole Old Testament was massively edited during the exile period. And you know, they, they, they fixed the whole Genesis story. They fixed Exodus, added in, so that it all fits into the seamless weave. There is no absolute, there's no evidence that any text was tampered with. And so I, just, I think it shows us the miracle which is God is the author. How, how can we, ultimate author, how can we think otherwise? Finally, last verse, beautiful verse, behold. This is, these are the very last things God says to his people in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of, of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, 
lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. <clears throat> so here's the final sign. God says, look for this. Um, Elijah will come back. There will be another Elijah, and he'll announce the coming of the kingdom. So who is Elijah come back again? John the Baptist. John the Baptist right? He lived and acted just like Elijah, and he announced the coming of the Messiah. And what is the ultimate uh, ministry of God's kingdom? It's reconciliation. Fathers turning back to their sons, sons turning back to their fathers. So the gospel is reconciliation. If we're not doing the ministry of reconciliation, we're not doing uh, the work of God's kingdom. So, I, I did good. Five minutes. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> yes. Oh, you know, I don't know. That's interesting. I'll have to, I, I would have to look at the, um, the original Hebrew word. But my guess is that anytime the translations disagree, it's because the original Hebrew word or Greek word has a lexical range, which allows for different ways to uh, translate it. So it could be that it could either mean tr uh, like a merchant or it could mean a Canaanite. So basically, like, you know, it depends on the context. And so the translations then will ha have their different opinions. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. yeah. <coughs> Sometimes. But... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I haven't looked at the text deeply enough to answer intelligently. I'm recording, so I, I don't want to say. <laughs> um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak not just to your uh, people of old Israel, but you're speaking even to us right now. Your word is alive. It's a double-edged sword. We pray that uh, it would impact us. It would go into our souls. We would eat it like food. Um, help us remember that uh, man, cannot, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.